Uh, my name is uh, Jordan. Really pleased to join all of you this morning. Um, some familiar faces, some less familiar. Would be great to get to, to meet every one of you. I guess, yeah, I'm going to put this down just a tad. Um, I uh, was able to have the joy of preaching an NDG this morning um, where I pastor a bit more locally, but also a pastor here in another sort of way, and that I get to come in um, and preach the Word of God for you from time to time as one of the, the pastors with Church 21. <clears throat> so that's fun. That's a joy. Um, I'm also looking forward to going on vacation next week. How many of you have already been on vacation so far this year? A couple hands. Are you, all of you waiting for August? Yes. <laughs> I hope so, or you're just not like stopping ever. Anyway, looking forward to that. Um, <clears throat> thank you, thank you, Lucas, for praying. Um, and really, my, it is my prayer that, Lord, you would give us an awareness of your presence and help us in Jesus' name. I want to start today with uh, a question. And maybe you've heard this question before. I'm kind of wondering if this is a question you've, you've gotten before. The question is this. <clears throat> Why do you allow people to eat pork and shellfish, and yet at the same time, you don't allow people to just sleep around? Like, this just seems so inconsistent. Both of these things are from your, your, your holy book, the Bible. Like, if God is love, isn't this, like, completely missing the heart of God? Have you received a question like that before? I certainly have. I see, see at least one nod. I had a few hands this morning. How would you respond if you were asked this? How would you respond? It's tough, isn't it? Some of you are probably wondering, like, okay, like, what does shellfish have anything to do with the text you were looking at this morning, more or less uh, sleeping around, what people do in their bedrooms? Well, the answer is actually a lot, if not everything. This key is actually, this text uh, in, in Mark chapter 7 is actually crucial to understanding and responding to this charge or this question. Right? And it really is a charge. It's a charge that, well, you Christians and you churches, at least, are being inconsistent. You Christians, are, you're being hypocritical, right, in that you defend one part of the Bible, the bits about sexuality, and yet you sort of leave off the other parts, the bits about, you know, food that is clean and unclean, right, eating shellfish and pork and so on. And so what we're going to be doing today is looking at Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 7, in order to help us understand this, in order to help us make sense of this question. This is a crucial passage. We're in a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you haven't been tracking with us uh, up until this point each week, we're looking at the life, the teachings of Jesus, working our way through uh, this book. Last week, we saw the story of the loaves and the fishes, and then Jesus, he walks on water. So a couple of stories back to back. This week, is not, it's not really a story. It's all teaching. And then next week, you know, from 20, verse 24 on, it's going to be more stories. And Mark structures his book as a whole in this way. There's teaching stories, teaching stories, alternating back and forth. And our teaching today about purity and food laws, like Lucas read, um, sets us up for the stories that we're going to hear next week. Jesus' teaching about purity and food laws makes possible what Jesus is going to do in his interactions with a non-Jewish person next week. It makes sense of it, and we're going to start to understand why. 
So if you would like to uh, begin, follow along with me. Chapter 7 and verse 1. I'm going to be going verse uh, by verse. So it helps if you have a Bible uh, with you. There might have been some on the table if you came in. If not. Um, Now when the Pharisees, this is uh, chapter 7 verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. uh, Now Jerusalem would have been like the epicenter, the hub of the Jewish uh, religion. And then you've got the scribes and the Pharisees coming. These are like the Jewish religious leaders. Okay, so you got these religious leaders coming from the hub. This would have been like, you know, there's a crisis in the Catholic Church and they send like priests from Rome. You know what I'm talking? Okay, so there's like religious leaders from the epicenter from Jerusalem and they're coming. And are they coming to to learn from Jesus, to listen to his teaching? For healing? No, no, they're not. Okay, it's okay if you respond to me, you know, you're... I, I encourage a vocal audience, okay? But no, um, they're not coming to hear from him and to be healed. They're coming to scrutinize, and we see that in verse 2, where they saw some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And so there they are scrutinizing the disciples, and they're like, they don't wash their hands before they eat. And we're like, yeah, well, I guess it's a big deal now, but... <laughs> Time of Jesus, there was different considerations, and we might wonder why this was a big deal for them uh, then. And so Mark adds this note in verse 3 and 4 for us, a non-Jewish audience, to help us understand his book was probably written to uh, Rome, uh, non-Jewish audience, and so we'll read it. The note is in verse 3 and 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining pots, dining couches, and so on. And so this is Mark's note for us, the non-Jewish reader. And these are what are known as the Jewish purity laws. And there were all sorts of Jewish purity laws. There was laws about body fluids. There was laws about blood. There was laws about touching dead bodies. There was laws about which foods you could eat and which foods you could not eat. Whole like chapters about that. Okay. And so it's in this world that the Pharisees are voicing this concern. Okay. And so in verse five, and so this is what they ask. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why? Why? This is our question. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Why do they eat with defiled hands? Okay, there's the question. Well, for us to understand this question, there's a couple of important pieces of background that we need to grasp. Okay? The first important piece of background we need to grasp is that God is holy. God is holy. Who here has seen that Bible Project video on holiness? One hand, two hands. Yeah, it's really helpful, right? In it, they use the analogy of the sun for God's holiness. The sun is what? (laughs) The sun in the solar system is what? Hot. Yes, it's very hot. And it's the only one in the solar system. It's unique. And it's powerful. In fact, it's, it's so, so powerful that the space around the sun shares some of that power, right? Some of that, you could say, holiness in the analogy. And so if you get too close to the sun, what happens? Yeah, 
yeah, you're going to die. You're going to burn up. You're going to get annihilated. Why? Not because it's bad, but because it's so, so good. It's so powerful. And the same is true with God and his holiness, that he's unique He's unique, the one and only God. He is the source of life by which we all exist, and he's powerful. He is so, so powerful, so intense, that if we were to come near his presence, we could get what? Annihilated. He'd die. And this is why when God comes to earth and lives in the tabernacle, when his presence is close, that he sets up these like safety buffers so that we could, close, could come close to his presence and still live. So God's holiness is like the sun, right? So God's holiness is like the sun. That's the first thing we need to grasp. And the other is that unholiness is like dirt. Unholiness is like dirt. Would you eat a meal in your bathroom? The, I, if I had to, okay. Most people are saying no. The consensus is no. Would you eat a, a meal in the subway? <laughs> yeah, yeah, if I had to. Same. I've, I actually have. I know I have. For sure, there was a time, you know, extenuating circumstances I ate in the metro. But other than that, what is, what, why do we not eat in the metro or we not eat in our bathroom? It's, yeah, it's gross. It's dirty. It's nasty. There's like this sense that like this space just makes our food dirty, right? There's something about it. It's just our food's like, ah, can't eat it now right? <laughs> Even if you like walk through the bathroom with it. I don't know. Okay, so we get this idea that like this, this sense of associating spaces and things with making other things unclean or unholy, right? And that the uncleanness spreads, right? And so if your food falls on the floor, the floor is dirty, right? The food is now dirty too. And if you touch it with your hand, your hand is now dirty and so on and so on until you wash your hands, right? And the reverse is not true. So uncleanness beds, but the reverse is not true. So if my hands are clean and I touch the floor, it's not that the floor becomes clean, it's that my hand becomes dirty, right? And so God gave the the Jewish people this concept of ritual purity, of impurity or unholiness. It's, It's like this dirt that spreads. And because God is holy, he can't have impurity or this dirt in his presence. See, if I'm to smash these two uh, analogies together, God is holy, he's unique, he's, he's, he's powerful like the sun, and then we have this dirt that spreads. It's like a dangerous dirt. It's like a flammable dirt, right? And so we, if we come close to the presence of God, that's going to catch. And so God gave us certain ways that we can be pure, well, not pure, but certain ways by which we could come close to the presence of God, but we needed to be clean in order to do that, right? And so this is what that was all about. These Jewish purity laws were that the Jews could understand, right? It was like this, it wasn't just theology that God had given, right? It's not just, here's how it is, I'm holy, and that's that. No, it was like this thing they had to live out, like this acted analogy that, 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 gave them this deep awareness that God is holy. He's holy other in power and life and glory and goodness. So that's God. It's also an acted out analogy that I'm not, that I'm unholy and there's this, this dirt about me and it spreads and that in order for me to come into his presence and live, that something needs to be done about that. That is the point of what these rituals were. Okay, so we'd understand this lived out analogy. God is holy, we are not. We need purification to come into his presence and approach him. And being in his presence and approaching him, like that is what it was all about. Like those, those rituals and purity laws, those pointed towards that longing that we could be in the presence of God. 
That's like our modus operandus, so that we could worship him and live, be close to him and live, to worship you. I live to be known and be dwelling with God, right? And so all of this was pointing towards that, a lived out analogy. And when it came to the priests specifically, they had certain laws as well that they had to uh, wash themselves and they had to wash food that they brought into the temple. But by the time of Jesus, so getting into the question that we're getting here, uh, by the time of Jesus, it wasn't just that, you know, the temple food uh, had to be washed. It was that all food had to be washed. It wasn't just the priests who had to wash. It was like everybody had to wash, right? So you can see how it's like developing and being added to. Um, And it was almost like this concept, like we don't want to do anything to hinder the presence of God. And so it's not just going to be like dirt in the temple. It's going to be dirt in our home. We're going to take care of that too, right? So they're like building this elaborate like safety net around this stuff so that they can approach the presence of God. That's what they thought it had to be. And so they took this stuff really, really seriously, really seriously. Listen to this quote from uh, the Babylonian Talmud. This is Jewish historical text, not the Bible. Whoever eats bread without previously washing the hands is as though they had intercourse with a harlot. You can hear how seriously they took this. You gotta wash your hands. You gotta wash your hands. They didn't know anything about masks. <laughs> and so, of course, the disciples, they don't, they don't bother to do this. And so what does Jesus say to the Pharisees? Here, he says to them, In verse 6, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Hypocrites! Hypocrites, he's calling out the religious leaders. We're going to see this happen again and and again in Mark. He calls out, not anybody, but specifically religious leaders for hypocrisy. And he calls them out publicly. He's not just like, hey, religious leaders, like, come over here. Like, we should really talk about this in private. Here's, Here's what's kind of twisted about what you're saying here. No, he doesn't do that. It's a public rebuke. And there's something I want to say about this is that sometimes myself or one of the other pastors have in the past, and this will continue to happen, have to call out some Christian religious leader for something they've done or something they teach. And people will wonder why, like, why don't you just leave that or do it all in private? And the reason is this, that it's consistent with the way of Jesus, that clear public false teaching requires a clear public rebuke so that the harm can be undone, Right? But of course, it's reserved for religious leaders, right? That's very important. And so Jesus is calling these Pharisees hypocrites. And why? And we see this. Halfway through verse 6, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Their lips are here, but their hearts are here. Their hearts being like the source of their desires, the source of their affections in their will. Their heart is over here and their lips over here. And it even says that they're honoring God with their lips. That is, you know, they're, they're doing the right thing or they're having the right experiences or they're knowing the right thing. And yet, if your heart is over here, it doesn't matter. Your worship is in vain. Like all of this safety stuff that you set up in order to protect me and you have missed me. That's what Jesus is saying. See, it doesn't matter. Guys, listen to this. It doesn't matter if you're washing your hands and yet at the same time having envy and pride and hating your brother. It just doesn't cut it. That's not real worship. And God says, that's not what I want. It's not about that at all. This is religious hypocrisy. 
And he calls it out. He says it for what it is. And we need to hear that. It's striking. It's intense, isn't it? We're going to keep digging into this. But you can see how Jesus, he like really turns up the heat. He really shines the light on the dirt. He's getting to the bottom of what's going on here. And so he keeps going. This is just a question about hand washing and looking. Look at where this is going, right? He goes on. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. Leave what God says, hold to the tradition of man. What are some ways that we do that? What are some ways we do that? Well, I started thinking my gears got going. I remembered, you know, the church that I grew up in, the chairs, quadrants or semicircles. It was just this, their sense of like, because they're used in the worship gathering, like the spirit must have anointed where that chair is. You can't move it. You'll disturb the activity of the spirit. <laughs> Tradition of men, right? There's all sorts of examples like this, right? I bet you could think of some. What instruments we use in worship, the style of music, an order of service, right? Membership policies that have alcohol or not in them, right? Do we celebrate Christmas? All of this stuff, it can become super decisive, divisive, right? And yet it shouldn't. It shouldn't be divisive, right? Now, I think I'm saying this stuff. I'm thinking that most of this stuff is actually probably knowing our congregation pretty obvious to you. Right? It's not that, maybe not that relevant to us, right? Because if it was, you'd maybe be kind of sitting there like upset at me right now. You'd be like, I'm going to write him an email after. Right? <laughs> okay. So, so then what is, right? If we can easily see that sort of stuff, what, what might be some more relevant examples for us then? Well, let me give you a few. And one of them is I think we need to be aware that even good things, even spiritual things like you being here right now, are you praying together on a Thursday night? Are you reading your Bible? Even good spiritual things can become tradition. They can, can become rote in our heart. And I can say this because I know this. I've known this for myself. It can become this routine, just motions that I'm going through. And yet God doesn't want our motions. He doesn't want our activities in a routine. He wants our hearts. And so what are we to do? What are we to do? Are we just stop praying and going to church and all that stuff? No, that's not the solution, right? These are good things. They're spiritual things. The solution then isn't to drop them. It's to fight in them to experience God afresh. God, reveal yourself to me as I, you know, read your word. Help me to, to, to rediscover the purpose in my prayer. I don't want to settle for less in this stuff. Show me who you are. Fight. Fight your way through those things. Don't just drop. And so tradition, even good spiritual things, can fall into sort of motions that we go through. And so that's, that's subtle. We don't always notice that. We need to be aware of that. But there's another way this happens, okay? <clears throat> and that is that we tend to think of traditions like, you know, practices that we went through a long time ago, right? Old practices. But what about practices that we don't consider to be so old, like a cultural narrative that seems to us as relatively recent, right? Cultural narratives can become traditions. What do I mean? Well, take, for example, success. What does it mean to be successful as a Christian? Does it mean, you know, have a wife, a house, a kid, and a dog? Or does it mean, you know, self-actualization, experience things, and experiment with things until you find out who you really are? Is that the definition of success? Is that the Christian definition of success? Those are cultural narratives. No. What is the Christian definition of success? What did Jesus say? Faithfulness. 
be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You see then how subtle these cultural narratives that we've been handed down had become subversive and begun to work a way that we began to almost read them right into scripture and think that this is sort of the way of God, right? So we, we need to be exposed. They need to see them for what they are so that we don't do that. Right? These cultural narratives can become like traditions. And this is why then the church needs to be constantly reforming. The church needs to go through reformations. It needs to call out traditions like Jesus does here in verse 9. And he said to them, verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Look, Jesus doesn't want your traditions. He doesn't want your little moralistic safety nets. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. You're willing to give your heart to him. This is what reformation can do. It can help strip away those traditions so we get back to the heart and the word of God. These are examples that I've, you know, I'm giving you some examples, my past, what I think might be the case for us in the present. Jesus, now he gives an example here. In verse 10, Jesus' example of this. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained for me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and so, and many such things do you do? So this is Jesus' example, the example of the Pharisees basically, you know, telling people, telling people's sons and daughters that, you know what? Yes, it says in the commandments that you were to honor your parents, but you can make this vow. You can make this vow, which is a tradition of men. You make this vow, and you, as long as you make it to God, then you can get out of doing that, honoring your father and your mother. And Jesus is just calling this out for what it is. Yeah, just because you made a vow for God, to God, this is, guys, this is like a really spiritually twisted way of just beating around the bush, of just totally avoiding what I've already told you. You know, you're, you're saying you're attempting to make a safety net, but you've ended up just obscuring, you've ended up just making void the word of God. You're trying to get back to the heart of God, you're just pff, ripping it apart, right? What, what is going on, guys? And so he calls them back to Scripture. That's his solution. Calls them back to Scripture. Calls them back to the Word of God instead of them making it void. You know, there are movements within the church. Not our church necessarily, but there are movements afoot within the church generally that claim to be doing that. They claim to be stripping away tradition in order to get back to the heart of God. You know, this view of justice is not consistent with the justice of God or this view of love isn't consistent. God's love and God's justice is actually like this and what they don't see is they're importing cultural narratives and definitions of what love and justice looks like and applying it to scripture, stripping scripture, right? And so what are they doing? They're calling themselves reforming movements. They're claiming to bring you back to the heart of God, but they're doing it by taking you away from the word of God, right? Which is not what Jesus does at all. He doesn't, he takes you both back to the heart and the word of God in his reformation. You know, to state it bluntly, what I'm talking about here is, is a lot of what we would call progressive Christianity. 
probably not all of it, but much of it, right? It takes the commandments of God and it calls it the tradition of man. It takes a book that we believe is the divine human authorship and it calls it merely human, merely inspirational, right? And in the void left by the authority of scripture in sweeps our own authority of experience in order to reinterpret the word of God under the guise of getting back to the heart of God, but really making it void. Can you see that? It's so subtle. And so instead of the Bible being about God, being theocentric, being about his glory, the Bible, when we do this, becomes about ourselves and making much of ourselves. And guys, this is not the gospel. This is not reformation. (laughs) This is what Jesus comes to correct. He points us back to the heart of God and the word of God together. He doesn't void it. Okay. Keep going. Verse 14. And he called them, the people to him again, and said to them, Hear all of me and understand. Jesus really wants us to get this. It's really important. Verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And the disciples are like confused. And so, verse 17. And when they had entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that what goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. He just declares all foods clean. This teaching, it's, it's not a surprise. This is super radical. It's not a surprise that the disciples don't get this, right? Remember how seriously these Jewish food and purity laws were taken, right? Like so much of the Old Testament is about laying this out, chapters and chapters about which food was and wasn't clean, what you could wear and couldn't wear, what you had to sacrifice, all so that you could approach the presence of God, all to create this lived out analogy that human beings are what? They're unclean. They have this dirt that spreads and we need purification to come into God's presence. And so these laws you see again and again, they're Peter because they're taken so seriously and they're not just taken seriously in the law they're taken seriously we can see this from uh, from history that even a a few hundred years before Jesus during uh, the Maccabean times okay there was a Syrian king that came in and overthrew um, the Jewish people and he imprisoned a bunch of them and he gave them this option eat pork or die and you know what happened A lot of them died. A lot of them chose to die rather than to eat pork and be defiled, to avoid the commandment of God with unclean food. And so you have this current in the minds of the people, and then along comes Jesus, and he says, it's not what's on your hands, it's what's in your heart. It's not the pork that you're eating. It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. And so you can just see how audacious this would be, how surprising. It's like, Jesus, how can you say this? Like, people died for this. How can you just come here and declare all foods clean? And on top of that, Jesus, you're saying that we're voiding the law of God, and then you're just declaring all these foods clean that the law says are not. How are you not just doing the same thing? How can Jesus declare all these foods clean? The reason is at the cross. The reason is at the cross where Jesus can say, it is finished and the temple and the curtain rips open and the presence of God is made accessible. 
that Jesus can say it is finished. In other words, he has fulfilled the requirements of the law, all of them to a T. You see, I used to think that like Jesus had sort of like, it was like he'd gone through scripture, the Old Testament, he's just sort of like put a giant X over it. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't put a giant X over it and void it. No, it's as if he went through it and every single one he put a check mark beside it. He fulfilled it. Jesus didn't void the law. He came to fulfill the law in himself, in himself. That's why he can say, it is finished. And when he says it, it is finished, that curtain temple is ripped open and the presence of God is made accessible to us, that in Jesus, we can become pure, that in Jesus, we can become clean and approach the presence of God. And that's what it's all about. Isn't that amazing? Like you remember the story of the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter five, right? What was her issue? that the blood made her unclean, right? And then what happens? She approaches Jesus and what? She is healed. She's made clean. Like how is that, how does that happen? How is Jesus not made dirty? Well, because Jesus is the Holy One of God and the people that he touches are made clean. They're made whole. And if Jesus can do that for her, he can do that for you. That Jesus can make you whole that Jesus can make you clean, that he has fulfilled the law, the purity law, the cleanliness of laws, and all of its requirements in order to make you clean, that you through him by faith can now approach the presence of God and live. You can have life with God. Isn't that incredible? That's what it's all about. You can approach him and live. Remember, his holiness is like the sun. It exposes everything, all of our dirt. And yet, now he can clean that and we can approach him and live. He purifies us. This is the new covenant that Jesus came to bring. This is the new order that the New Testament is all about. It's really important that we understand this as Christians. We understand the covenant of Jesus. Hebrews 9.10 says that matters of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, that these external regulations applied until the time of the new order. They applied until the time of Jesus. And in Jesus, this new covenant order has come, or Colossians, that these things were a shadow of what was to come. And of course, that, that's just what we're getting at here, that these purity laws and these food laws, they're a shadow, and that shadow can only be filled by who? By Jesus, that Jesus is the substance of what is happening here. He fulfills those laws, and the purpose of them is now complete. That in Christ, they're complete, they're resolved, and when we put our faith in him, we are made clean. Isn't that amazing? And this is why Jesus can come along, and he can just declare those foods to be clean. He does not void the law. He fulfills the law. In a sense, you know, it's like these laws were like a giant fast. A giant fast. A giant fast from bacon and shellfish and all sorts of good things. And also a giant fast inevitably is a consequence between Jew and non-Jew. It was like a fast that, that pointed to is an anticipation for God to reconcile all things to himself. But now that Jesus has come, now that he can make us clean and purify us, he has done that. He's reconciled us to himself and the time of feasting has come. Jew and non-Jew together can eat together in communion 
with God. Isn't that amazing? The fast has ended. The feast has come. And this is how Jesus' teaching lays the groundwork for what we're going to see next week in which he lays a feast before some 5,000 Jew and non-Jew together. But we still have that question from the beginning, don't we? Right? Isn't it inconsistent? Isn't it just cherry-picking to say you can eat pork and shellfish, but you can't just sleep with whoever you want? Didn't Jesus fulfill the law? Well, it's not quite that simple, okay? The purpose of the purity laws and the food, li- food laws, yes, that has been complete in Jesus. Those have, th- what they pointed to was Jesus. He was the substance or the shadow, and he comes and he steps into it and he checks them off. But what about the laws around morality? What about the laws around who we can sleep with and the the poor and killing and envy and lust and so on? What about those laws? Well, those laws, their purpose still stands. Those laws, the purpose is to point to the holy nature of God who is unique and life-giving and powerful and in his goodness, he relates to us by things like he has a care for the vulnerable. He has a care for the poor, right? He cares how we treat each other. He cares how we treat our families. And he cares how we express ourselves sexually. God is holy. His character doesn't change. And we are to reflect him and his holiness of character. That's why those still stand. And the others have now been made complete. It's so important that we understand this. And this is why Jesus reiterates You see much of them right here in verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality. There you see it. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Man, I feel like Lucas did when he said, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a long list. That's hard for us to hear. And while I want to acknowledge it's hard for us to hear, it's actually good for us to hear in a few ways, okay? A few really important ways. One of those is that it helps us understand what's wrong, okay? The, pro- the heart of the human problem, it's been said, is the problem of the human heart, A lot of us, as we go through lives and we express the kind of things that are listed by Jesus here, will want to point to other factors, right? It was the way I was raised. It was something that happened to me. This person did this thing to me, all right? It was my nurturing. But what Jesus is saying here is that fundamentally, it's a problem of nature. It's a problem of human nature. It's a problem of the heart. And you're wondering, well, how is that helpful to hear. Well, it's helpful to hear because being given responsibility, you're being given responsibility. And when you're given responsibility, you're given the dignity of being able to begin to make it right with God. But you can't make it right. Jesus has made it right for you. That out of this heart and all of these things, Jesus would describe this as a, as a dead heart or a heart of stone. And yet what Jesus has come to do is to come and bring us clean hearts, to make us clean, to give us hearts that are animated not by sin but by his spirit and out of them come love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith. These sort of things become a default reaction when 
challenges hit you in life as a result of him giving you a new heart. That's what's possible when you are in Christ. That's what's possible when he makes you clean and you rely on his spirit to begin to change you. This is why it's actually helpful for us to hear because we get to the root of the problem and then we see that Jesus is the one who brings the solution. He brings us a new heart, a heart that is clean and a heart that I so desperately needed and that we also desperately need. And yet, what are we to do, right? What are we to do with the fact that most of us, as we live our lives, we're like, yes, I'm a Christian. I've received this new heart from Jesus. I've received the Holy Spirit. And yet the reality is, I know I don't live that out. I hear a list like this, and man, I'm convicted. There's many counts on this as a Christian that I would be convicted of. What am I to do with that? Well, I think first is that we need to recognize Jesus' methodology here, right? He's majoring on the majors, which is why I'm majoring on the majors. He majors on sin, not to condemn us, but so that we might experience deep conviction and then deep grace. See, he's not going to just leave us in deep conviction. He's going to bring us to deep wells and wondrous grace. That's what he has on offer for us, but he has to take us through that. Even as Christians, conviction is crucial. It is so important. See, guys, we've been talking about so much, you know, in our gatherings about the presence of God, about seeing him move, about revival, about longing to see him come down and just rip open the windows of heaven and move among us in ways that we have never seen before. And guys, I believe that is possible. And yet, are we ready for it? Are we actually ready for it? Because if we're actually ready for it, I think one of the things that Jesus wants us to see here is that for us to be prepared, we need to be ready for this deep conviction of sin. Deep conviction of sin. You know, as I was, um, as I was thinking about this, this deep conviction of sin that Jesus brings here and that you might be experiencing, I, I thought of some, a story of revival that I had heard pretty recently, and it was a preacher who, who lived through it in 1949-50 in the Hebrides Islands in Scotland, and there was these, these striking stories of people's awareness of sin, and one of them in particular really stuck out to me. You know, there's, that, there's this guy, and he's, he's on the floor before God for hours, and he's saying this again and again, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, Lord, have mercy on me, Lord, for I don't even deserve hell. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I don't even deserve hell. Not that hell was too good for him, but that he knew that hell was too good a state for him in his sin. I'm like, what? I don't even know conviction like that. That's like Isaiah, like the prophet who like comes into the presence of God and he's like, woe is me. I'm undone. I am a unclean and a sinful man. This is a prophet talking. Like, I don't know that. I don't know that. But see, if God wants to move in revival in our midst, guys, he's going to need to bring us to these places. He's going to need to bring us to places of deep conviction of sin, deep conviction of sin so that you can know deep wells of his mercy and his goodness and his forgiveness and his love towards you. It is so important. And so if you're experiencing conviction of sin right now, If something that I said or what Jesus lists off in this text is bringing you to a place of conviction of sin, I don't want you to ignore that. 
I don't want you to walk out this door and repress that. I want you to take that to Jesus. Remember the woman with the issue of blood? She had but to touch the garment of Jesus, but a bit of the presence of God and his grace and his mercy is just eager and waiting to overflow you, to rush over you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how long you've done it. It doesn't matter how long you've hid it. It doesn't matter how ashamed you are. What you need to know is this, is that God's grace is enough to deal with it. God's grace is enough to cover it. God's grace is enough to face it, and God's grace is enough to make you clean and give you the power to live differently. This is what is true. This is what you can have. You can step into what Jesus has already made way for you in Christ. You can step into the holiness that he declares over you. You can realize this. You can experience this in your life. It doesn't just need to be a theology. It doesn't just need to be your legal standing that Christ has declared over you. It can be real you. That can be you. You can walk in grace and forgiveness. And that's what Jesus wants for you. And so if you're experiencing conviction of sin right now, if you are under the weight of what Jesus calls out in this text or anything else, anything that the Spirit has brought on you, I want to lead you into a prayer of of confession so that you can now, even while I'm preaching, even while I'm praying, even while we're singing, even while we're taking communion, experience the grace of God afresh. Don't leave without doing that. But before I pray, I want to read you through the lyrics of this song. Just close your eyes and listen to it with me. It's clean by Hillsong. And if you're going to pray this prayer along with me after I read this song, I would just invite you, when you do that, to open your hands in the posture of reception. But the song is this, precious blood has left me forgiven, pure and like the whitest of snow, powerful to make sin and shame retreat, this covenant is making me whole. Purify my heart in your presence. Teach me to discover the joy of holiness that forms as you draw me close. In you what is lost is restored. For I will rise and lift my head. For by his mercy my life was spared. The highest name has set me free. Because of Jesus, my heart is clean. Jesus. I pray for anybody here who's opening their hearts in this opening their hands and hearts in this posture of reception, who is under conviction of sin. I pray that you would meet them right now and that they would join me in praying this. Would you join me in praying this? Lord Jesus, I am so sorry. I am so wrong. Come, Spirit, and administer forgiveness to my heart. Thank you for what you've done, Jesus. Help me, Jesus, live a life of purity for you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.